Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 113. Today's guest is Marco the Professor Perazzo. Marco Perazzo, known in the BJJ community as the Professor, has been a cornerman for MMA fighters competing in the UFC and Bellator. Marco is a fourth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu owner and head instructor of New Jersey Martial Arts located in Maple Shade, New Jersey. And he is also, as he likes to say, the main co-host of the popular Ninja Rob podcast, where he and former MMA fighter Tim Carpenter discuss all things UFC and MMA. Marco and I talk conquering imposter syndrome. Marco shares with us how to brew the perfect cup of coffee why we need to fall in love with the process in anything we're trying to accomplish. We talk about evolving your BJJ game, lessons that Marco learned from 15 years of owning his own small business. We also talk why you should have a podcast and the benefits of podcasting and what he learned through the COVID-19 shutdown, what it taught him about business and life. Also too, this is the first podcast that I am putting on YouTube with the video. So please check out the new Built Not Born YouTube channel. It only took me about 10 years to get comfortable enough to transition from a blog to a podcast because podcasting flat out scared me. And now it only took me 113 episodes to go from audio to video. It's definitely uh, a confidence thing. Uh, it's an ego thing. It's a comfort thing. It's an iteration of one step at a time. So hopefully this is the next evolution of this little project. Either uh, Google Joe Chickerone or Built Not Born podcast on YouTube to see this. Also too, if you can check out we're going to get a new sub stack going, a new blog that is going to go along with the podcast. So working out what it is, but sign up to be the first to know when it launches. Uh, I'm going to kind of do an episode x-ray, what I learned from each guest, takeable, actionable items that you can read in under 90 seconds uh, that you can apply to your business and life, uh, any cool products, gear, books, courses uh, that our guests talk about. I'm going to have links to all that, plus uh, a couple of really quick takeaways that you could read in 90 seconds or less. So go to joechickerone.com, sign up for the Substack, and uh, look for the new Substack and the new YouTube channel. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend we have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Marco, the Professor Perazzo. And remember, life is built, not born. Marco Perazzo, welcome back to the show. Yes, it's been, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while, man. For those that want to get to know Marco a little bit in his background. Marco was actually my 15th guest. That's number one five over two years ago. He and I sat down in July, 2021. The episode is called Ninja Rob, BJJ and Building Relationships. Go back to that. Marco shows a ton of knowledge on his backstory, how he got into teaching jujitsu and life lessons learned growing up in South Philly and his trips to Argentina and Italy. But dude, 
What have you been up to? Uh, well, I don't want people to think that maybe you got Gordon Ryan on, on the show or maybe a, 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 sl- a smaller, slimmer version of Josh Barnett. This is really me. <laughs> I like the beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mother was, uh, was scolding me, telling me I'm lazy. And that's the only reason why I have the beard. But uh, <laughs> how, long, how long do you have the beard for? It's epic. I've always had like a, some sort of beard or goatee, but maybe over the last three or four months, I've let it grow out to something substantial. So it's been, it's been a fun, uh, fun facial transformation. Juan, thanks so much for jumping back on, man. Of course, man. I'd love to just go a little deeper on a couple of, a couple of topics we touched on two years ago and just some new things. Since we last spoke, the evolution of A, the art of BJJ, two, the evolution of the teaching process has absolutely transformed over the last two years. Also, two, maybe we talk about some life lessons learned podcasting. I know you got you and Tim were years ahead of me on the podcast world. You guys, I think you last checked, you have 214 episodes. You're ranked in the top 2.5% in the world of podcasts. Really wow. cool. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. We we cracked 70,000 downloads not too long ago. So we're 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 having fun. Dude, that's no small feat, man. You know how hard these are to push out, get out, you know, get just keep them relevant and kindly. And that's no small feat. Congratulations on 200 episodes. Thank you. That, that is awesome. Thank you. Thank anyway, you. Anyway, start off. We last spoke when COVID just started the break. It's about a year after the world shut down, right? We're talking the summer of 21. We're two plus years out. What have you seen, say, in the jujitsu world or just owning the small business as an entrepreneur? COVID, what are the after effects, the positives and negatives? What do you see? Well, I mean, it, it, some of the positives are is that from a jujitsu standpoint, I think the people that were training through COVID really showed, a, man, a true dedication to uh, jujitsu, martial arts, Muay Thai, MMA, whatever they happened to be uh, be training or wh- whatever drove them at the time. And, and they realized how much maybe it was important to them physically, but for the most part, I believe most people kept training during the pandemic because of what it did for their mental health. And I, I don't want to say, oh, you know, jujitsu saves people's lives and give it more importance than, than it truly has. But I think for us to be well-rounded human beings, we need that, that thing that we lean into that rounds out the circle, right? And for a lot of our folks here, and I think at a lot of other schools, this was the thing that helped make them complete. And you could see how much they loved it during the pandemic and how happy they are now to get new folks into it. Uh, so I think that was probably the biggest revelation for me is how important this physical activity was for people's mental health. Yeah, it's the physical aspect. It's that like push, pull. It's that visceral, like that wrestling, that grappling, or that real close contact, that almost uncomfortable close contact. If you've never been like that first class, that kind of throws people off if they're unsure if they want to do it. But also to that sense of community, right? Like that group, core group of people, you wind up in some schedule, you should train two, three, four, five days a week. It's kind of the same crew on certain nights. And you just get in that community and then you start hanging out after class. And like, when you take that away, I think mental health suffers. Don't you think? What have you seen? Yeah. You know, if you've ever seen the pictures of what they do to people on Guantanamo, Mm -hmm. right? What do they do is they, they deprive them a lot of their senses and touch 
is yeah. is really one of those and it's not so much not to like be flipping about it but it's the touch of other human beings yeah right and and you really want to make someone you know what's the first thing you do when you're upset at someone you want to pull yourself away from them right rather than lean into them and 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 touch them in a in a kind way anyway so yeah it it's definitely a big part and we've seen that the you know the people that do and lo- love martial arts jujitsu in general uh this is again unbelievably important all the aspects of, like you like you touched upon the camaraderie uh, the the friendship circle but also i i'm a big believer and and i push that you know jujitsu isn't your entire life martial arts isn't your entire life it's that slice of the pie that completes your life right your whole friend circle shouldn't be everybody from your school right your everything that you do shouldn't be surrounded a, a, around that this is the thing where we were able to come and meet and see our friends and hang out at that time when classes are happening after class and then move back on to our regular lives so that we could be either more productive better parents better business owners better podcasters whatever yeah and for a student to get those benefits, there's going to have to be some sort of entrepreneur like yourself that goes from student, like you mentioned in episode 15, or I think you said around 2006, you purchased New Jersey martial arts, you bought it. And Correct. then one, you kept it going. So we're talking 14, you're talking 17 years through a global pandemic. And probably you hit a global yes. recession in 07, 08, where like the economy basically stopped. So two major events of the economy that had nothing to do with you, but you were part of it. How does someone, regardless of jujitsu or a flower shop or a restaurant, how can you speak to some of the principles you use to A, one, have the courage to open something yourself, but two, how you evolve that, how you evolve through economic crises, how do you keep your business relevant? How do you keep it fresh? How do you know when to adapt and change, expand, put a new coat of paint on the wall? Can you speak to those principles that you use to keep your place as relevant as possible so people keep showing up? Yeah. So from a business standpoint, one of the most important things you could do as a small business owner is have the right professionals around you, your accountant, your lawyer. Those are probably the two most important from an operations standpoint besides yourself to make sure that you're doing the things correctly and that you're taking care of the things that you need to take care of from a bureaucratic or licensing fees, taxes, all that other stuff. Because it's real easy as a small business owner. It's like you don't know what you don't know. You're blind to your blindness, right? Do I need an account? No, I could handle it myself. You're always better off paying a professional from that standpoint to handle those things for you because it allows you to focus on the reasons why you open the school. So you're saying, you know, how did we survive the pandemic? Well, I never got into this business because I thought that this was going to make me a millionaire, right? That's why I buy lottery tickets mm-hmm. every so often <laughs> so that I can, I can, I can hit the lottery and then just run the school like I live my life. But I, think I might have said this on our last time, but I truly live like a billionaire. And what I, when I say that, I don't have Ferraris and I live in a row home in South Philly, but from a freedom standpoint, I have a lot of freedom. I'm able to take my kids to school, pick them up when I need to, go to all my parent-teacher meetings. If I need some time off, I get that time off. If I want to, I'm into certain hobbies outside of the martial arts, uh, that I give myself daily time to to take care of that. So for me, this life, 
uh, and this business has been more about the lifestyle that it affords me and understanding that I'm not going to become wealthy doing it from a financial standpoint, but that's never been my scorecard. My scorecard is how free is my time when I'm not teaching? And it is, it's extremely free. The other thing too, is I live, I try to live well within my means, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, from a business standpoint, we're not too flashy, but we have everything that we need. Mm -hmm. Same thing in my home, not too flashy, have everything we need. Same thing with my kids, not too flashy, but we have everything that we need. So from that standpoint, we were able to ride out these, uh, these economic downturns. Yeah. A couple of things there, just to recap. One, like you said, you live the life of a billionaire. There, there's like some fable where there's some fisherman in some island and uh, a banker comes to him and said, wow, why don't you borrow X amount of money so you can expand? He's like, why would I want to do that? And he says, then you can go to different locations. Why would I want to do that? Then you could hire a team and make more money. Then at one point, sell the business and be able to hang out on the beach and take your daughter to school. And he's like, I do that already. I, I already have dinner with my family. I take my daughter to school and I have like everything you said I would get after I had all this anxiety and misery and all this extra work. I am, I'm already doing that. Yeah. It's what, what's, do you want to enjoy those things when you're young enough to enjoy them? Yeah. And that's what I want to enjoy them now where I'm young enough and, and, uh, you know, healthy enough where these are the, I can pick up my kids. I can play with them. We can go for hikes and walks in the park or, or do whatever, not when I'm 75, where maybe that'll be a struggle then. Oh, yeah. Did, are you familiar with Ryan Holiday, writes The Daily Stoic? Are, are you familiar with him? He wrote The Obstacles of the Way. I believe you gifted me The Daily Stoic for being on your show last time. I did. That's right. I did. Yes, I did. Yes. And if you look at today's entry, I spend two minutes with it every morning. Today's entry, there's a quote from Seneca, uh, the ancient Roman philosopher, that's right on what you just said. Uh, the quote is, when I just wrote it down, it's at my desk. It's right here. It goes, we should live well, but not in luxury because what luxury requires is gathered by many miseries and anxieties. So it's just, it's just so much stress. And we all know that stockbroker. I had a friend who worked in New York and made triple what I made, but my God, he looked like he was 10 years older than he was. He drank a lot. Like his marriage was bad, Like it's, but he made a shit ton of money, right? But right, it's, right, right. it's just all that anxiety that he has to deal with to make all that money to do that trading successfully. Like, is it worth it? Like they, sometimes it's not like it's, it's like what you said, it's simple is better. No, I, I agree with you. And I clearly I'll agree with Seneca on that one as well. <laughs> and then how about, how have you seen yourself as a business person evolve since 06, 17 years? What do you do now? that you said like maybe like you wouldn't have done before or what don't you do now that maybe you did in the past business-wise? How would you categorize that? So I, I run the place pretty lean in the sense of it's just me. So at one point, maybe I did want to have people on staff and instructors and pull myself back and almost manage the business. But then, uh, then I, would, I was thinking I'm losing sight of why I started or why I bought the business. Mm -hmm. So I've leaned into more of being here every day, being here for just about every class, knowing exactly what's going on. Cause I don't want to be the business owner that just shows up and I'm writing checks or I'm handling bills. And then I don't know what's going in or going on in class, or I can't look at a student and know what his name or her name is and what they're, what's going on in their life or a conversation that we had. So I, I look at my school as a boutique as opposed to a department store. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to be that boutique. Okay. Maybe we charge more. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even really care what, I, what anybody else is charging, but I want you to realize that this is a boutique atmosphere. You're getting a curated experience. This isn't cookie cutter. I'm not trying to make processes that are uh, like a McDonald's where we're going to have a thousand of them and we need those repeatable processes. I want to make sure that this is a bespoke experience mm-hmm. unlike any other. Yeah. How about, is there anything you do now you've done over the last few years that maybe you didn't do earlier on that maybe is like a best practice you could pass on? How do you make it? A, yeah. How so do you make for, that boutique? For, right? right. So even from a standpoint of how someone, you know, would onboard or become a student, right? We used to have crazy questionnaires, sit down and talk, do a one-on-one private lesson and all this other stuff. And now we've gotten to the core of the matter. Do they like the classes or not? Do they like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Do they like Muay Thai? Can it help them reach the goals that they have? I mean, we just boil it down to those simple things. And the other thing that we do from a process, we, when I say we, I really mean me, is uh, when it's time to sit down and, and get someone to join, I talk to them when they walk in for their first class and say, hey, you're going to take a couple classes. I'm not going to talk to you right now about pricing, scheduling, or what it takes to join. I say, I'm going to talk to you about that after a couple classes so that now you have some context because if we talk about that too early there's no context right like Mm -hmm. these numbers this money doesn't make sense to the experience the and on top of that we make sure that we get people to come in during the times that we have lessons going on so that we're knocking out one of the objections that's real easy to say when you're objecting to a sale well, it, the classes aren't convenient for the time that I need them to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you've already been here for a few classes at the time this, that classes are happening. So that's really no longer an objection. Yep. So then that's it really fine. becomes, did you like it? Can you afford it? And we go from there. Say you have 10 students joined today, guys, yes. girls from 50 years old to 20 years old. What percent of those 10 do you think make it to, uh, to Blue Belt in this day and age? Probably 10%, 15. Okay. Maybe one or two. Okay. Yeah. Well, one or two. Yeah. And where I'm, that's one of the things I'll ask you a question for me. Like what's one of the things that I'm worst at Mm -hmm. and that's promoting students, Mm -hmm. but because uh, it took me a long time to get promoted and not that that's a fair thing to say, well, if it took me a long time, it should take you a long time. Mm -hmm. But I'm also you know, sometimes you have imposter syndrome, like I'm the guy that's promoting these people. Are they really ready? And I want to make sure that they're truly ready. But also I want to ensure that the people that are getting promoted are really dedicated to the process as opposed to the outcome. Mm-hmm. And if they're willing to stick around and not be driven by the piece of tape or the cloth of cotton that's wrapped around your waist, then there's another reason why they should be getting promoted on top of technical abilities. Yeah. Like as a teacher, like if you can promote the process and not worry about the outcome, that's that's a very Seth Godinism. Like he talks about like creativity. If you put something out into the world, like you can control the process, but you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. Like like I, you could do a blog post or a, or you put a you put an episode out. Like there's episodes I put out I'm like wow, this is the one that's really going to pop. And it was average or below average. And there's right. some I put out there and I'm like, I'm not crazy about this one, but it's the next one in the queue and I'll send it out. 
And that's the one that has triple the viewers than a normal podcast that I usually put out. Like one, we don't know what's going to hit, right? But like, if you fall in love with the process, like the outcomes usually take care of itself, don't it? Like if you just love it. I I think so. But, But I also think if the process is unique and driven by an ethos, then that's also, that also comes through. Okay. Yep. I say, what point in your journey, say jujitsu, what point of your, do you remember it wasn't about the belts anymore? Probably. I mean, honestly, it, it, it became about the belt for me when I wanted to get the, the black belt. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was ever like, man, whatever. I didn't care. Blue belt was awesome. Pur- purple belt. I, and I might've even said this on our last episode, I was the worst blue belt. I was the worst purple belt. I was the worst brown belt. And here I am four degrees later on my, mm-hmm. on my black belt. Yeah. Black belt was important because it's that validation, mm-hmm. right? It's also from a professional standpoint, you could say, yes, I am a black belt. I've been deemed that I'm a quote unquote subject matter expert in this field. So from that standpoint, it was really important from an outsider looking in. It wasn't a problem when I didn't have it, but it just Mm -hmm. added some validity to what we're doing once I got it. Yeah, yeah. I remember Blue Belt for me, Blue Belt was like a surprise. It was way back in the day. It was at Max Size. I was there. And and talk about like the worst Blue Belt, the worst Purple Belt. If you were obviously your way ahead of me in the journey, but like I probably took your mantle as the worst white belt. Like when you were, so I took the spot. Like when you went out, I, 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 I left that, I left the baton for you. Like every time I got promoted, just <laughs> ass kicked, like just destroyed, like everything, but like picked up and thrown out the second floor window, right? Like it just destroyed. But just think about all the folks that no longer do it. Mm-hmm. How terrible yeah. are they? Yeah. Right. Sure. right? Yep. And then one day the blue belt shows up and you're like, oh, this is awesome. It's excited. But then like I probably blue belt for six years, like legit training for six years. And I probably got worse. And, and I think we're going to follow up with like teaching methodologies next. But like I got worse as I was training more. I don't know if that's possible, but I think I did it. But at least in my head, I did. But then like eventually right. the purple comes and like you're floored. I, I, I literally said like they would post promotions and wouldn't be me, wouldn't be me, wouldn't be me. And like, you know what? F this. I don't care. I will train to the day I die as a blue belt. And I'll be perfectly content. Like I love, I fell in love with the process of blue belt. Does that make sense? Yeah, like for I, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and then, then especially, the well, what were you going to love if you were a blue belt for six years? Yeah. You couldn't love the anticipation of a promotion you were never getting. Sure. Right. Or Absolutely. it took six years to get. So yep. you had to lean into some positivity of something that could have been deemed negative. Yep, absolutely. And then speaking of process teaching, I I think this is where we could lean into a little bit in the conversation. How has your teaching style evolved since like in the last 15 years? Because if you start like in 06, just broad picture, a lot of basically upper body attacks right from the 06, like the lower body's just starting to come through, right? It wasn't really the Danaher system wasn't really around that much in 06, at least that wasn't popularized. Online instruction was basically like zero back at the time, the technology. Now everyone's got an online instructional. People have courses online. People get promoted online. The first question, how has your teaching methodology evolved since you started? What have you noticed? So what occurs is most people that teach martial arts have never technically learned 
what are some best practices for teaching? What do they do? They mimic or mime the way they learn. And they figured, well, this is how teaching human movement is supposed to be, right? So you get that. So for a long time, I was just copying the ideas, the techniques that I had learned and the way that I had learned them. So that was kind of in the beginning. As you you progress and you really want to make a mark as your as an instructor, but as an instructor that isn't under anybody. And when I, I, I hate the term under, if I were to, I would never ask you, Joe, who are you under? Mm-hmm. Right? Because then it kind of means that there's some sort of odd power dynamic that somebody's over you. So what I would say is, Joe, who's your instructor? That's a different way of kind of bringing this conversation to a point where we could talk respectfully about the teachers that have taught us and have given us our belt ranks and that kind of thing. I always want to make sure that my students don't think that they're under me, right? Because they're not. They're just here to learn from me. I happen to be the subject matter expert that they have entrusted. So knowing that these folks have trusted me, I always kind of look, is there a better way to do this? Can I? Can we improve upon how it's always been done? Because if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And maybe we want different, more, and better. Mm-hmm. So you start looking into quote unquote systems or, you know, how classes can be run. So from that standpoint, I've changed an awful lot of how I would teach, where it would be teach three techniques. Maybe they're interconnected, maybe they're not, and then live role, mm-hmm. right? Or then I started adding, looking into, well, anything that's ever done athletically and jujitsu and Muay Thai are no different. There's always some sort of warm up. And I know there's a big, if you go on Reddit, uh, warm ups are BS. I don't pay for warm ups, this and that. Well, then don't, don't go to a school that has them if you don't like them. But at our school, we warm up because I think it's important to get the body ready to learn. Mm-hmm. But also, there's certain movements that, if you believe the experts, help make you a better learner. Mm-hmm. So if I can get you to do some movements before class to make you a better learner, why wouldn't I do them? on top of warming you up and getting you ready in part of a physical activity. Yeah. So that was probably one of the first things that we introduced was warming up as opposed to not warming up. Then we would go in and teach technique and then roll, right? Which is basically, I'd say 95% of the schools in the world, maybe half of them have a warm up, the other half don't. They teach technique and then you live roll. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and you would maybe you agree or disagree, that's likely the standard format. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then you start looking at, or you, you read, and I'm not even talking about reading or learning from experts in the field of learning, but just reading and looking at or listening to experts in the field of producing amazing students. So we'll look at John Donaher being one of them, or maybe uh, Keenan Cornelius being another, someone that's kind of almost trained himself to a certain degree to that high level of proficiency and dive into our, what are they saying? What are they doing? And how can I bring that into what I'm doing to make my students better? And ultimately that's, that's the only job an instructor has Mm -hmm. is to make their student better. It shouldn't be about anything else. If it's about anything else, then we're having a problem Mm -hmm. and how that has ultimately manifested itself for me as an instructor is, uh, and th- it's funny, recently there's been a, a blow up 
in uh, the popularity of some terms called ec- ecological learning approach, pardon me, ecological-based learning or the constraints-led approach, where it's not so much about getting a student to memorize a technique and then asking them to be able to repeat this from memory. Because if we were to think about that, and I'm not saying I invented this idea, there's other uh, other people that have been doing it longer than I have, but I've been doing it long enough to have a feeling and an understanding of how it works for me and my students. If I were to teach you a technique today and then throw you into open mat, depending on the uh, difference in skill level would dictate if you are able to make it work, mm-hmm. right? If you're much better than the person, then you can dictate that you can, you can make it work. If you're of equal level, maybe your success rate isn't going to be as much. And if they're much better than you, then clearly it's probably not, not going to work. So when we teach techniques, and I'm going to talk more about what I would consider a constraints-led approach versus ecological, when we're, we set up rules and barriers so that a student who's learning a technique, a move, or a uh, kind of a general idea is able to learn it as it's being resisted and that's the first thing that a beginner student needs to deal with, right? The hardest thing to deal with as a beginner is intensity, right? That's always when somebody goes to train live and they've never trained before. Oh my God, that was so intense. That was so difficult. So we add a rules layer that only allows for intensity for a beginner, but doesn't allow for variability, right? It's hard enough for a beginner to deal with intensity. Then I'm giving them intensity and then 17 different options off that intensity. No, no way. That's just, they can't process fast enough and they don't have the years of training to, to be able to deal with that. So that would be how kind of, I would approach a beginner. It's like, okay, if I could teach you, if Joe, this is your first day, I'm going to mount you. I'm to give an example. I can only keep the mount. That's all I can do. I can't switch off to cross side. I can't switch off the knee and belly, but I can be as heavy. I can grab your head. I can grab your arm. I can do everything that I need to do to keep the mount. And you on bottom, you have one job. Use either the, if we learn the bumper roll, how to do the bumper roll. If we learn the elbow escape, how to try and use the elbow escape with the person on top, having the constraints that are put upon them so that now you're like, oh, wow, this really does work when somebody's resisting fully, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And when we bring that approach into a more advanced student, we either add more rules to make the engagement wider, or we take rules away to widen the engagement. But what we never do is strip away any of the intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is exactly where I want to take this. If you ask me, what did I believe a few years back compared to now? I used to think live rolling, just no constraints, just you roll, you, you and I roll, then I roll with the next guy, you roll with the next guy. That's how you get better. Just just roll. Just slap hands, go. Now, like I think if you got a student and then you did the constraints, like today is just cross side, right? And he can do nothing but cross side. You just have to escape. And you did that a hundred times. And then you switch because he can go from cross side to the mount. Then you're dealing with that. And you build your game that way. Where I'm at right now, I think people get better. If you did those positional sparring, situational sparrings with varied intensity and rules, 
I think that student gets better than if you just said, hey, five rolls, go. And like you slap hands with no instruction. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and also, why am I doing it the way I'm doing it? Because when you were training in Center City, how many mm-hmm. times a week were you coming to class? Three. Three. So if you're coming to class three times a week, you're not warming up, you're learning three techniques and you're rolling. Well, maybe you're getting better at the techniques that you were shown and that you were me- that you memorized and that you made work in an if then proposition. If all these things lined up, then this technique worked, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is maximize for a person just like you. They can only come three times a week. And if we take this constraints-led approach or if for some others that use an ecological approach, if we take that approach, I believe and I could see with my students here that the three-time-a-week hobbyist is so much better using this because minimally on the techniques that they're taught, they have a much deeper knowledge base and understanding of the nuance because they've gotten to the resistance much earlier. And as they get better, they're getting to the variability. And then what we're hoping is that when they go to live roll and they get put in that situation, well, this is nothing new. I know how to escape this. I've escaped this a hundred times, or I've been able to use this offensive piece a hundred times and then string it to other things. But the argument would be, uh, most of your world champions have gotten better in that old way of doing it, right? Where they can come in, take class, or maybe not take class. You know, most students, you go to some schools, there's just people hanging out on the side, not even doing the technique, and then they just wait for the live rolling. So I don't want my students to be in charge of if they get good. I want Mm -hmm. my students to be in charge of if they get better. Mm -hmm. I take them to good. Their job is to take them to better. And the way that I feel like works best for me and them and how we interface the best is with this, you know, even if I might, some people would argue that I'm using the terms incorrectly, but with these approaches ecologically or or constraints led. Yeah, the constraints, I think you're on to something with that. Last question about the teaching. How do you recommend or utilize so much online instruction out there? Which are some best practices? If someone's like, hey, I I see Henry Akins has something and the Gracie Academy has something, Danaher has 4,000 videos, Gordon Ryan has his own videos. Like, I think when you're everywhere, you're nowhere. Say there's a blue belt out there listening or a purple belt. How do you best utilize online instruction to improve your game? Right. So I think um, much like we had just talked about where, okay, the you use John Donaher as an example. And I argue that I don't think he's the best instructor in the world because that's like a nonsense term, right? Because he might be the best instructor for me, but not necessarily for you. What I say is maybe he's got the best content in the world, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the techniques that he shows and the depth of knowledge and his explanations. So having said that, we'll use him again as an example is how do we break down the pieces of what he's showing me so that I can start enacting them into my game through games, right? So we take just a piece of it, right? How do I work this piece into resistance where it leads to the next piece where it leads to the next piece? So I think it's really important that if you're watching instructionals is that you come to open map when it's your time to work on getting better Grab one of your training partners and say, hey, I want to work on this, but we're going to work on it in a very specific progressive way where we're progressing through intensity and variability to get to this finishing point, say the heel hook 
but the first thing we need to do is be able to control the leg. All right, well, let's play some leg control games. And once we get through, all right, I feel comfortable around controlling the leg. All right, let's talk about how do I get to the finish, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I get to the finish? Obviously, without destroying your knee, but I can get to the finish quite often through resistance, but also not injuring my partner. So I would, I would take that approach to it where it is just like any reference material. It's worthless unless you're trying to enact it in a way that works for you best. Mm-hmm. Piece by piece. And even taking it a step backwards from there. Would you recommend maybe just picking someone like a Danaher or a Henry Akins or a Hickson? Pick one person. This is where I would love to see like my game evolve to, like that, that style. Pick one person and just follow their teaching methodologies. Or do you think there's value of just being everywhere? Like I'm watching Danaher. I'm watching Hickson. I'm watching Fabio Santos. I'm just all over the place stealing ideas from everybody. So it, it depends on what your, what, what's your goal, right? Honestly. If, man, you have a limited amount of time and you can't access that time when you're outside of your jiu-jitsu gym or your martial arts gym, then just get better at everything that your instructor is working on because clearly he's teaching it to you for some reason. The reason might be misguided. It might be a terrible reason, but you never have to worry about what you're learning when you're going to a school. Mm-hmm. When you put the learning in your own hands, then maybe you're going off in, in some directions that could not be bene- beneficial for you. Having said that, it really depends on where you believe your deficiencies lie. So let's just say, since how old are you, Joe? Not to give an indelicate question, but what's your age? No, I'm 51. You're 51. So I'll be 51 in September. We don't come from a generation of leg lockers, mm-hmm. right? Like leg lockers is more, it seems to be very popular with the younger kids. Yep. So yeah, all right. Who are the some who's got the greatest leg lock content? John Donaher, Dean Lister, Gordon Ryan. So if you want to get better at leg locks, go see those guys. If you want to get better at takedowns, you go see my friend Kyle. When I say see, buy Kyle Sermonera's takedown DVD and then try and work it into your current game. But I would say approach your deficiencies that you think are there, consume that content but then try to apply it on the mats in some sort of substantial and meaningful way. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So is there like an underlying concept on how you approach your lesson plans? Oh, funny that you would ask. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm a big fan of two things that I'm, that I'm a hobbyist in, right? One of them is motorsports and the motorsports at the highest level of, of Formula One and also coffee. And these things, what's very interesting about both of those is that if you change one of the inputs, the, the outcome or the output changes drastically. So in, in Formula One racing, if you tweak a bit of aerodynamics, it could make, it could have this kind of knock on effect either of a great benefit or could be disastrous, right? So that's what's interesting there. And even with coffee, you change the way you grind a bean, then it inherently changes the flavor of the coffee mm-hmm. and your style of drink. But having said that, I like looking at, at how we teach and what we teach from an upgrade package standpoint. So I want to be able to, at the end of a package cycle, be it four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, I can look back and feel confident that my students have gotten better at a certain set of techniques a certain idea, 
a certain concept that we're, this is the upgrade package that I'm handing into their jujitsu and they're able to use this either in live sparring or at, I guess the highest level of expression would be in competition. So I like having, I don't want to say a system, but a package that we're offering them. And some students benefit from a certain set of the techniques or the ideas from the package. Other students benefit from uh, a different set of ideas or techniques. And some, you know, and hopefully in best cases, they benefit from the whole package in and of itself. So that's where I think one of the things that, that kind of gives us some unique styles and, and aspects to our teaching and learning. Yeah. What were some of the benefits you see out of that when you, when you go that direction? What do you see? Well, I, there's no question if you put enough time, effort, and the proper teaching methodologies and training methodologies in that they can't help but improve at what you want them to improve at. Yep. There's just no way that they can. If they're coming to class consistently, I know that let's just to say if we work mount for four weeks, mm-hmm. there's no way they're not better at keeping, staying, submitting, transitioning that we've you know that we've hyper focused. You know, you, you probably know the old saying: if you're looking to drill for water, is it better to drill deep or to drill wide? We're yeah. trying to drill deep. Yep, that's right on. From like uh, a couple of weeks back, I was lucky enough to have uh, Javier Vasquez, uh, the uh, ex MMA fighter, UFC fighter, on, and he yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, that yeah, he totally um, he changed the methodology where he's spending ten years with the Carlson Gracie team, ten years with the Gracie Academy. His thing is, he, you go to his school in Rancho Cucamonga in Southern Cali, like you'll do guard, you'll do bottom of side mount for a week. That's all you do, and then then you'll be like bottom amount for a week. Then you're in the guard for a week. Then you're in someone's guard for a week. Like that's all you do. Like you do it and you just drill deep. He just like takes that one position and you go so deep for a week where it's just burned into your head before you move on. Does that make sense? Sure. But, but also you, and the other thing that kind of dovetails into the success of these upgrade packages is, you know, well, what's your school about? Mm-hmm. Right. And for us, it's, we want to take you down and we want to keep you down. Yep. Right. And keeping you down typically would mean if we take you down, passing your guard, if you engage the guard, stay on top, be on top, submit from the top. If you yep. get, um, we don't sit to our ass. If we have to go to our ass, it's because we were put there and there was no way to get on top. And then we have kind of a hierarchy of, okay. all right, if we're on bottom, we're way more dangerous when we're using our legs than not. So that means the guard. Once we get the guard, our first set of ideas is how do I reverse the position? Meaning how do I get on top? If I can't get on top, how do I submit my opponent? And if I can't submit my opponent, how do I make sure I don't get my guard pass and get put in a worse position? That's great. Ah, that's man, it's right on the money. You should do this for a living. Is everything about getting your own school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, thanks. That sounds like good advice. And awesome. real quick, you're a coffee guy. What's your coffee? In what sense? Um, it's, a, like, it's a loaded question. Give me a bean. If you're buying whole beans, what do you buy? No, so that, that's the so I'm more of a style of coffee. If I were getting a bean right now, it would likely be a natural Ethiopian. Okay. I like that. Yep. There, there's probably a bunch of different uh stay is a really good um uh, bean roaster out of Brooklyn. There's a local roaster here in South Jersey called Royal Mile. Okay. Uh those would probably be where where I would go, but I like the exploration of trying different beans and I go to a, a coffee shop that's that's considered a multi-roaster. So they're always cycling through different beans and different roasters. So you get a chance to try a bunch of different stuff. 
I'm a little biased. I lived in, I was down the city for a while and I just got hooked to La Cologne, the Corsica. You're an LC fan? Uh, so LC was part of my growth and process of becoming a coffee snob. Okay. So I no, I, I would not buy that anymore. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with, uh, how about Black Rifle? Not familiar. I don't know them at all. The problem with most coffee is that our idea of coffee, this is a whole different tangent, is it's this, you, most of the time you're getting the flavor of the fire mm-hmm. as opposed to the flavor that comes naturally to the bean. There's more variation in coffee flavors mm-hmm. than there is in wine. Yeah. So if you're getting a delicately roasted and processed bean, you can have some coffees that you would, if your eyes were closed, you would think you're drinking tea, mm-hmm. that they're so floral and airy yeah. that it it's amazing. Last coffee question here. What do you put in yours? What, what you're like? N- nothing. You go, you go black. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I got into uh, Laird Hamilton, Laird Superfood Creamer. Did you ever try that? No, I have not. It's like cacao and coconut powder kind of grinded together. It's pretty good. Nice. Wake you up like a Christmas tree, man. I drink that. I don't <laughs> blink for the first two hours of the day. Awesome. Awesome. Let's, let's transition over to the podcast. You and Tim, the Ninja Rob, you guys are like 200 plus in. Some life lessons learned. Maybe first off, podcasting. How did you first decide to get into it? And then what kept you going to 200 plus episodes? So it was always something that we were trying to do. And there's a bunch of kind of episodes that are in the dark that we never, ever released that we just recorded. Because when we were trying to do it, the the hardware wasn't easy enough to use that made it simple enough to be able to produce them if you weren't going to, if you weren't spending either a lot of money or going to a podcast studio that had all the equipment already set up for you there. So we were lucky enough when one of my students, Devin Wade, he joins and his son joins and he tells me, oh, he has a a podcast studio. And I go, great. I have been wanting to get a podcast started for a a long, long time. And we would just go to his studio. We record the episodes. He'd edit it. He'd give me a finalized file and we'd kind of go from there. After a while, just with COVID and our schedules, but also with the technology from a hardware standpoint for recording podcasts has become so much more accessible mm-hmm. that we um, were able to record the podcast here at my school at a time that's a little bit more convenient than going to the, uh, going to the studio. But if anybody wants to record a podcast, it's really, if you have maybe $350, you can get started today. Mm-hmm. What have you found uh, a couple hundred episodes in? What are some of the benefits of having your own podcast? Honestly, it's it's fun. Like that's the biggest benefit. Tim and JB, who's the other host on the podcast, and when Devin was on, it's really just hanging out with people that I'd be hanging out with anyway, talking about things that we would probably be talking about anyway. So I get to to become a better and a deeper friend with the people that I'm talking to. Really, like honestly, that's the biggest benefit. I have no, you know, I'm not going to be Joe Rogan if the opportunity ever presented itself. I wouldn't say no, but. That's not the end goal for this. The end goal was to position ourselves as experts in the field, hang out, have fun, and talk into microphones. Yeah, check on all three, man. You guys are doing a great job at that. How about what you learned 200 episodes in? 
probably the biggest thing that you can do to be successful at podcasting is to be almost robotically consistent with putting your episodes out. Mm-hmm. Right. I think over 215 episodes, four years later, we may have missed eight weeks of dropping an episode, either new or a rerun for various reasons, either somebody being sick or just some things came up and we couldn't get together. So we've done all those episodes and we typically record them a couple days before we release them and then we, we put it out. We don't edit our episodes. We, whatever gets recorded into the microphone gets sent out to the world. Mm-hmm. No, very cool. You guys definitely have that real feel, that conversational feel and they ship it right out. How about, say you look out over the next 200 episodes, what would you want to add, delete, stop doing? Where do you want to take it from here? Painfully more of the same, honestly. it's We've gotten to a point where it's easy enough. It's not a big ask for any of us to do. And we're having a lot of fun. When it's no longer fun, when it's too big to ask, then... That will probably stop. Tim Carpenter is another one that he's unbelievably consistent with everything that he does. And we know that we get together at 2.30 on Sundays. We have that pre-planned unless we're either away or out of the country or, or what have you. So yeah, no, no, no real plans. We don't even promote the episodes much anymore. So I have no clue anymore how people find new episodes unless they're already old listeners to the show. That's pretty cool. What brings you not to promote the episodes? What's the thought process there? nothing more so than most of it falls onto me outside of the content that we produce as we're making the show. So I have the SD card. I have to clean up whatever I need to clean up. I need to upload the file and I had to do the promoting of it other than the description, which Tim Carpenter typically writes. I just didn't feel like doing it anymore. Honestly, I was like, I don't feel like promoting it anymore. So I just stopped promoting it. Good stuff. How about what would you say to someone out there that's thinking about having a podcast? Maybe he's a little intimidated to put their voice out there. What would you tell them? Yeah, you got to get over that. That's the the first thing is, you know, get over the, do you want to have a podcast or not? Mm -hmm. Right. Then if you want to have a podcast and you have to be comfortable with not a lot of people listening, maybe a lot of people listening, people being upset or not happy with something that you said or disagreeing, it's just the, the, the reality of it. But if you feel like your voice is important enough, then make sure that you feel like your voice is important enough and do it. Did you think of any two more ego crushing things to be involved in than BJJ and podcasting? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, right? If you, again, right, it could be BJJ and podcasting could be ego crushing if Every time you look, you're just looking at the numbers or you're looking at the tape or you're looking at the cotton, then yes, 100%. But if the process in doing both is what you're into, then whatever. The outcome, if you get 50 downloads, fuck it, it's 50 downloads that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't done it. And it's 50 people that heard your voice. And hopefully you had fun doing it because if you're not, then, then don't do it. Oh, you just hit it right on the, if you, when you don't care, you care about the process more than the outcome because you control the process. You do not control the outcome, right? So maybe you have 50 downloads first couple of weeks, whatever. That's 50 more than you would have got. You, you wouldn't have got those 50 unless you had the podcast. It's so true. 
And um, you got to be comfortable with like putting like an hour into a podcast, doing some whatever you do, post-production, shipping it out there. And three people listen to it five days later. And then you're one of them that you downloaded it. You know, you get to be comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and it's funny because when I do look at the numbers, I go, weekly, more than half of our downloads are of old episodes. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm talking old. I'm like, wow. So who's listening to episode 50? You know, we're at episode 214. What what resonated about episode 50 that that was an episode that somebody needed to listen to? Now, you mentioned that to me when I first started. I think I called you and the first people I called. A couple episodes in, you and I had a conversation offline. And you're like, keep going because the long tail. You're going to have that book of podcasts that episode 14, two years later, there's going to be a bunch of downloads. One day, you're going to have no idea why. There's residual listens are going to happen as you keep building right. your business. It's pretty cool. We got to get one going before it have any residual business. Right? Yeah, yeah, and, and you can see how many podcasts have been abandoned. Oh, too. like yeah, it's a sea of five. There's a Seth Godin said once there is an ocean of five podcasts and done right because the first one's fun and exciting. You might have an idea for the second and third one, and you get a cool guest. Maybe you know someone who's sort of noted or famous. Right, the fifth one, your brother calls him and he comes on the show for ten minutes. But like after the fifth one, if you don't know what you're doing or have an idea or just you say, if you don't fall in love with the process by the fifth right. one, you're dead. Like it's done. You're not getting the 15 or 20, right? Right. And see, like, that's why I have a lot of respect for what you're doing because I refuse to almost do an exclusive interview type podcast because of how difficult it is lining up guests, having timetables align, those kinds of things where I'm like, man, I, my hat's off to you to to wanting and being able to coordinate all that stuff because it's uh, it, it's too much of a hassle. Thank you. I appreciate you noticing. And that's one of the reasons why there's only one a week. I don't golf, but I have a lot of friends that golf. And golfing is like a five, six hour proposition. By the time you drive to the course and you do your 18 holes and you have your beer, right. then you drive home, it's like five hours. And I'm like, if I can do my podcast in that five hour realm, it's just like I did around the golf, right? Like it's not overtaking my life. Like it's just like, it's a hobby I have. So like I can do this podcast broken up, not all at once in five hours, but if I put like 45 minutes to an hour a day, most days into this, I'll have an episode at the end of the week. Does that make sense? Right. So, and that's yeah, for very sure. doable, yeah. but I can't do two or three episodes a week. You said that lining up timetables and stuff, it just gets too challenging. How about uh, a couple of rapid fire questions for you? Go for it. Just top of mind stuff, just fun questions. How about this? What is something that you believe that other people think is insane? What is something? uh, I I think they think this is insane. So I truly believe that everyone is being sincere and honest, but I'm always waiting for, but I'm always kind of like, uh, when's this motherfucker going to lie to me now? (laughs) <laughs> right. Like I, I'm for whatever reason, I'm like, I mean, I, I, I trust you and believe in you, but I don't know what it is, but when are you going to let me down? So it's kind of, it's, it's a very, um, nuanced way of believing in people, but also, uh, okay. They let me down there. I'm right. It's the, it, it, I hate it when I'm right. Yeah. So you believe in people instinctively believe in people, but you, at some point you're, you're going to, you believe that they're going to let you down. You're waiting for them to let you down at some point. <laughs> That's awesome. I, well, and or it's like, all right, when, when is this happening? Right. And I, it, it sucks because I'm like, I really want to believe in you, but there's a little part of me, maybe it's my parents' upbringing of saying, you know, a little bit of that distrust. I don't know what, why, but people think I'm nuts for that. 
That's all. No, thanks for sharing that. How about this one? What purchase of uh, $100 or less has most positively impacted your life? Purchase of $100 or less. Uh, oh, man. I don't know. It's, it's so many. That's a good, that's a really good question. $100 has, so I just recently bought this G-Shock watch mm-hmm. and I believe I caught it on sale. Cause I have, I won't spend more than a hundred dollars on a watch kind of like my threshold. And this was over a hundred bucks, but I caught it on sale. So it came under a hundred mm-hmm. and it is a dumb smartwatch. So what that means to me is it lets me know when I get a notification, but I can't read the email or the notification. So what it's helped me do is be attentive to the things that are important that are coming on my phone, but it allows me to be away from my phone and not do the doom scrolling. So if something important, a text from my wife and a business email were to come in, I just take a quick look. Okay, great. I need to handle this or check this text or email. Or if I see it's a message from Tim Carpenter, I could put that in the garbage bin, right? <laughs> you know, so. that's, per- no, that's very cool. It gives you the best of both worlds. You're not attached to it. You're not like doom scrolling. It doesn't take your attention, but it lets you know when something important comes up. That's uh, Yes, for sure. That's awesome. How about this? What's the worst advice you hear being dispensed in your world, the world of jiu-jitsu? What do you think? Drill, drilling drill drill till you till you become an expert at it drilling is the key drilling is the key that's probably the worst advice i think the drilling is a overall piece too many people think it's the biggest piece and it's likely as an instructor it's the most boring thing i can watch somebody do is mindlessly and with zero resistance work through a technique Mm -hmm. so uh, but also for them, it's an if-then proposition. If all these things line up, then this technique works as you're drilling it because you're not getting any resistance. It's never how it's done in the real in, in a real situation. That's good. That's really good. How about this? What have you changed your mind about in the past few years? You, you believed in the past, but you've changed your mind. Dr- drilling. Drilling? Yeah. Drilling. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. when yeah, we grew drill, up, drilling has... Drillers were killers, right? And then the exercise day. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was always drill, drill, killers. drill. Yeah. And it's like you get better at drilling. And there's <laughs> something to it, right? And But does that skill transfer? And like we talked about earlier, we've, you know, for me, I found this middle ground. I think there is some benefit to drilling, just like there's some benefit to a lot of other things. But drilling shouldn't, uh, mindlessly drilling shouldn't eat up most of uh, your training time. Gotcha. Or learning time. Yep. Wrapping these up. How about what do you believe is true, even though you can't prove it? Aliens. Yeah. They got yeah. to be true. They got to. I, I grew up, my father was a big, there's this uh, author, Zachariah Sitchkin, Chariot of the Gods, and all these things that point, and these books that point to ancient civilizations that were affected by alien life forms and that that kind of thing. So I was exposed to this stuff kind of early, but it would be really uh, sad if we were the only thing in this vast, vast universe. Yeah. No, it it totally makes sense. I'm with you there. How about this? Last question. 
Marco, we've talked about a lot. We talked about podcasting. We talked about the evolution of teaching, your evolution of you as an entrepreneur. If you could give everyone listening just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? To, to find that thing, and for us, and when I say us, you and I, it's jujitsu or the martial arts. But to find that thing that closes out your circle, right? That, that, that completes you. Doesn't define you, but it completes you. And if I could give any piece of advice, I would say find that thing. I would say lean into something that's physical in nature just because of the health benefits that come along with it. But find that thing that completes you. And even if you think you're complete, maybe you need to take stock of that. Wow, that's good. First off, you think if anyone thinks they're complete, that's just a red herring knowing that you're not complete. <laughs> right, but, for sure. But find something that completes you, that doesn't define you, but completes your circle. Lean into it, especially if it's physical. Uh, I think that is about as good a spot as any to wrap this up. Marco, it's so great to see you, my friend. Likewise. So if people are looking for you and Ninja Rob and New Jersey martial arts, where can we find you online? So I like Instagram the best. So team NJMA on Instagram. We also have uh, Ninja Rob. I think it's Ninja Rob podcast or Ninja Rob. Not as you could tell, since we're not so much good at promoting the episodes, it's one of those, but look for us there. We have a website that hasn't been updated. If you want to interact with us, Instagram would probably be the best because we take we take listener questions that are always always fun to get. Awesome. I'll put the Instagram handle up at Ninja Rob website, even though you guys don't update it or look at it. I'll put that up and uh, in the show notes. You got Thank it. Thank you. So, Marco, so great to see you. Wish you continued success at the school and on Appreciate the podcast. It. Keep rocking, man. Great to see you, my brother. No problem, bro. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. All right. All right be well. Take care. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. If you could go to iTunes or Spotify or your favorite podcast listening app and give us a rating. If you could punch out a five-star review, give us a like, leave a comment. Uh, that goes such a long way with growing the podcast and connecting it to a bigger audience. If you could, I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Talk soon.